Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I'm excited because I have with me Ben Jackson, who is the founder of Hear Me Out. And we're going to talk about work, workplace culture, and all things just related to work and careers. I came across Ben's work in Charlie Worzel's newsletter, and I think it's really interesting, particularly within the context of how many of us are thinking about work and how uh, work is uh, evolving or changing, as well as how we're making work work for us. Uh, that's a lot of work. But uh, I'm, I'm glad that Ben is here, uh, and he's going to talk a little bit about who he is, what he does, and I think this is going to be a really great discussion. So, Ben, first and foremost, thanks for joining me on the NBA Insider Podcast. As I mentioned, I was really excited to have you on because I think some of the work you do is really, really interesting. So before we dive into that, could you just start off with just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and what is Hear Me Out? Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So I'll start by telling you about myself and and then talk a little bit about Hear Me Out. So I have been working across design, technology, and product um, for about 20 years. And I have worked at companies like the New York Times and Vice um, in the media space, working on mobile apps and as an engineering leader. I've also co-run my own agency in the past, early on in my career. And I think in terms of Hear Me Out, I, I always describe it to people as it, you know, it's a culture strategy service for growing teams. And, you know, that's a little bit, you know, of a new term for a lot of people. So I like to compare it sometimes to product strategy in the sense that it's a process of really understanding at a very deep and nuanced level the needs of your employees and using that insight to make work less stressful and more rewarding for them in much the same way that a product team will use their insights into customers and their motivations and their behaviors to create a product experience that resonates with them. Our work is deeply rooted in confidential one-on-one employee interviews. Typically, we'll speak to a group of 10 to 30 employees at a time, individually record those conversations and redact them of all identifying details to preserve people's confidentiality. And from there, we'll find patterns in the feedback, things that run across multiple conversations around the same themes, and share that narrative with the executive team so that they can gain a fuller understanding of what makes employees tick, what kinds of things motivate them, what kinds of things get in the way of their progress. Thank you for sharing that. And I love the analogy you gave in terms of your background, in terms of working in in product. I think uh, the parallels in terms of that kind of parlaying over into culture really make a lot of sense and employees in terms of going out and very much how you might do customer development. It's kind of like doing employee development in terms of unearthing, you know, some of those pain points and challenges and, and being able to surface them up. I would just be curious how much of your past work experience in those roles influenced your desire to really study work and employees more deeply or what, what really drove you to doing this? It's funny you ask. I I always used to refer to 
this thing back when I was working in the software world, there's there's a there's a law called Conway's law. And you know, Conway's law, it's about organizational structures and how they influence products. And and the short version, what they say is um, organizations are destined to replicate their communication structures as software products. In other words, they joke that if you have a if you have four teams working on a compiler, you will always end up with a four-pass compiler because every team needs something to do, right? <laughs> they need to justify their existence. Um, and so, you know, understanding that and really seeing how many of the challenges in the products we were building were really just rooted in people issues, right? It became very clear to me that there was something, there was, there was a layer of organizational stuff that sat on top of the product stuff and influenced all of the decisions that we were making inside the product teams at all of the places that I had worked in the past. That combined with my own experience at a bunch of different levels as an independent contributor, as a manager, as a director, and seeing how many invisible barriers there were to communication across levels inside organizations made me really gain a new appreciation for the importance of feedback and specifically the importance of psychological safety. As I saw both myself and my direct reports and my managers hold back really valuable and important feedback from HR, oftentimes because they just weren't sure that it was going to, that they were going to do anything with it or that if they did, that, that they would be safe for speaking up. I, as you're talking, one of the things I think about sometimes is that uh, with, with products, sometimes if you aren't careful enough, the product experience will often mirror, mirror whatever's in your org chart or whatever just dysfunctions are, are in your org chart, right? And I think, you know, kind of a perfect example of that is in a customer service experience when you get bounced around from 15 different departments who say, oh, that's not my thing. You need to talk to so-and-so or, or something like that. And, and as you're talking about that, that is like the first thing that, that comes to mind, particularly as you talk about Conway's Law. But the one of the things you said there, and you talked a little bit about the one-on-one -on -one interviews and really getting to the root of some of the challenges that um, employees are facing in terms of maybe not feeling like they can speak up, not feeling a sense of psychological safety, not having trust either with their teammates or individual managers, those types of things. Would love to just maybe hear a little bit more just about within the context of where we are right now. And so we're recording this towards the end of February of 2022. Certainly all the narratives, which I'm sure all of our listeners have heard right now in terms of the great resignation, the great reimagination, the great whatever you want to call it. But just from all the interviews that you've been doing, what are some of the, if you could, I know you've, you hear a lot of things, but could you summarize maybe a couple of the top ones or the ones that are most poignant to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of themes that have really stuck in my mind and, you know, been put into even sharper relief this past year. The first one is around cynicism. And a lot of people, a lot of employees are feeling a lot more cynical about work now than they did even a year, two years ago. And really at its core, the, the problem is that most employees no longer believe their leaders are acting from a place of good faith. And by that, I mean, they don't necessarily have confidence that what, they, that what their leadership says they believe and what they say they're prioritizing actually reflect their true beliefs and their true priorities. People always talk about walking the walk and talking the talk. And, you know, when the company is 
talking a certain talk and walking a very different walk, that really leads to, on the one hand, a lot of disillusionments, um, but on the other hand, just a lot of cognitive dissonance that employees suffer. Because when your company is telling you every day, we are a great place with a great culture, we value people, we're here to change the world for the better. But when you see a very different reality in your day-to-day, that cognitive dissonance is really, really difficult to resolve. And a lot of employees are suffering, in my opinion right now, from a very specific malady called moral injury. Moral injury is similar to PTSD, but different in the sense that it's rooted in it's rooted in jobs where employees are forced to take actions that conflict with their most deeply held values. And you know, right now if you're hiring as a company, it's very difficult if not impossible for you to hire the right people without a corporate narrative that is pro-employee, pro-social good, you know, purpose-driven, mission-driven, call it what you want, call it just the, the good companies, one of the good ones. It's really hard to hire people without that kind of narrative. But actually following through on those promises is very, very challenging, especially when the employees are not the only stakeholders in the room. As a CEO, you've got a board of investors. Those investors have LPs. Those LPs have shareholders who need their returns. And so if on the one hand, you need to hire the right people to reach the goals to get those returns, but the only way to do that is to make promises that aren't necessarily going to hold up to investor scrutiny, that's a really, really tough nut to crack. And most leaders will opt to spin the right narrative and figure the rest out later. So I think, you know, cynicism is a real challenge right now. Another theme that I have seen consistently is the generation gap, which has, especially as we, you know, moved from the office to fully remote to something weird and in between, has really been thrown into sharp relief as well. Because oftentimes the people who are making the decisions about return to office plans, they come from very different generations and oftentimes very different backgrounds, even socioeconomic backgrounds, than many of the people who are impacted by those decisions around return to office plans and flexible work arrangements and everything else. I think those are all really critical issues and I would love to maybe unpack a couple of those real for, for a second the the one that comes to mind first is the the first one you gave in terms of i guess it's the classic say do gap in terms of the things that someone says and then the things that happen in in actuality and i i was reading some research i think from mckinsey that really studied this idea around corporate purpose and part of the the research that they found is that they said that in a lot of cases when you say when you say your purpose it ends up and when you when you articulate a purpose and it ends up not be, being what it says it is, the research says it's almost worse than not having being clear on what your purpose is at all, right? And I think part of that comes the, from the expectation versus reality gap, right? And you know, to what you said, it's, it's hard right now not to put out a narrative that is pro-employee that talks about being flexible or remote or whatever it ends up being. But if, unless that actually happens for the individual who signs up and takes the job because of that, 
If that doesn't happen, there's going to be some kind of gap that's involved. So that that was the first thing that came to mind. I think the second thing that came to mind is it is the expectation versus reality gap, but it's also more in the lens of the example, the classic example is our employees are burned out. So here's a yoga virtual webinar, right? And it's just this idea of maybe band-aids when, when stitches or surgery are needed. And, and the either the inability for an organization to grok the, 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 the severity of, of the challenges that their employees are facing or the inability or willingness to address them in a way that employees feel that is commiserate with the, the, the challenge or the pain that they're feeling. So those were the, the first two things that came to mind. I think there's a real challenge with feelings of helplessness to yeah. address these root causes. Because sure. if you have a burnout problem and that burnout problem is usually rooted in understaffing for organizations that run lean, right? When people are overworked, it's oftentimes because we don't have enough people to fill the demand for the work that needs to happen. So if we have people burned out, if that is the result of overwork because we're understaffed, then the sensible solution is, well, let's start staffing up. Let's try and instead of being at 95% of the headcount we need to get all the work done and overworking everyone, why don't we shoot for 110% of the headcount we need so that if someone gets sick, the whole thing doesn't come crashing down. But in order to do that, someone has to go to the board (laughs) and say, look, we don't have enough people to do the work we need to do to hit the milestones we've all set. And that's a difficult conversation for a CEO to have with the board, especially if three or six months earlier, they presented their headcount plan with a high level of confidence that this was adequate staffing. And oftentimes, I, I, I really do believe that many of the challenges we see in HR, I joke all the time that you know all HR problems are thinly veiled communication problems. And I do believe that When these kinds of difficult decisions come on the table, there's a choice between finding a way to communicate the right decision to stakeholders who may not be receptive receptive to it and taking the easy path, which is making a decision that isn't difficult to communicate, but that you're going to have problems with later on. I think that's a good point to make. And to give a little bit of breathing room to to leaders, threading the needle on managing expectations with all of your constituents, employees, investors, uh, shareholders, et cetera, customers is is not is not an easy is not an easy task. It, it's it's and it's not as simple as just do X or do Y. There's much more nuance that's involved in it, and and so I think that's it's important to articulate that. But I think to your point where they potentially fall short is in what you just said in terms of in that case of communicating clearly and openly about what it, what the solution is and in a effective and transparent way versus potentially taking an easier pass. That potentially is where some of the challenge kind of comes in, right? When, and when, you know, and then just, and the distrust comes in, right. In terms of the, the, the organization. Transparency is difficult because Oftentimes, transparency, real transparency, requires a level of moral courage that not everyone has. Sure, sure. I would love to know 
obviously, it sounds like in many of these cases, companies who are engaging you understand that things are not going how they want them to. Although maybe there are some, maybe you do have some customers who are more proactive on this. But I would just be curious to know, what is that interaction like when you're presenting a readout or presenting a summary of your findings after doing your interviews? How do those conversations go with leaders and executives? They're rarely as contentious as you might think. Oftentimes, going into a study, the leadership has an inkling, some kind of idea that something might be off. Maybe one of three or four things might be off. What's really challenging for leadership teams is distinguishing between the issues that are one-offs or that are not severe enough to, to merit immediate action versus the issues that are severe and widespread enough to really be priorities. And so oftentimes when I'm presenting, I'll, I'll get to a slide that I know is just a, a facepalm slide, let's call it, with a quote that's just where, where you see the quote and you're just like, oh my goodness. One of my favorite examples is one of the first studies I did. I had one slide with an employee saying, I'm not sure exactly who my manager is. I think it might be person A, but you know, person B gives me a lot of stuff to do too. And on the next slide, I had a quote from a manager saying, I'm not 100% sure if I should be in this interview because I don't really know if I'm a manager or not. And when I get to a slide like that, oftentimes the reaction is not shock or even surprise, but I, I jokingly referred to it as the facepalm slide because oftentimes that, that is the reaction. It's, it's, it's a facepalm. Oh, man. We had a suspicion that this might be an issue, but now we really understand the depth of what's going on. And those conversations are, in the overwhelming majority of cases, very constructive and focused on finding ways to move forward now that we as a team have established a shared reality. And that shared reality is really, really important because when leadership teams disagree. Typically, it's not necessarily that they're disagreeing on the facts, but they're disagreeing on which facts are most important to create that picture of what our shared reality is. One of the, one of the things that strikes me as I think about some of the work that you do, as well as all of the different tools and technologies out there that we have in terms of soliciting employee feedback whether it's through software itself, through regular pulse surveys, et cetera, um, we have more than we've ever had. Despite that, there still seems to be sometimes a disconnect in terms of how employees feel or what the pulse is and what leaders think. And even just going back for a second to the example you gave about, well, could we just hire more employees? That's a very sensible solution, but it's also not necessarily like groundbreaking, right? It's not necessarily like this huge transformative aha moment. And I, I guess where I'm going with this is I'm wondering where is the the disconnect? Because I think sometimes for sometimes when I hear about you know, some of the things that you're you're listing off, I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, this solution seems like it, or this problem seems like it has a couple sensible solutions that may seem pretty easy to try, but it's still not happening. And so I'm just wondering, are, am I missing something? Are we missing something? Or where kind of is the nuance or disconnect in terms of 
what's being said and then the potential actions to uh, mitigate against that? There's a couple areas I think are worth calling out. The first is that employees withhold a lot of feedback from their employers. There are a lot of reasons why they hold it back. Some employees are scared of blowback, either because they've experienced it themselves in past roles or they've seen coworkers who spoke up and faced the consequences. There is a natural and unfortunate, but natural distrust of HR in large part because at least now, as we're recording this in 2022, pretty much everyone understands the role of HR inside an organization is to protect the company first and foremost. But even those notwithstanding, there are individual and collective reasons why people don't speak up. Some people have childhood trauma, depending on the way that you were raised and the authority figures in your life, in your childhood, you might have very, very different propensity to speak up. There are even evolutionary factors. We are uh, primed by evolution to hide from danger when we see it. When your boss stops by and says, hey, I'd really like to chat about how things are going. Can you open up to me? That is the professional equivalent of a, a tiger showing up in the jungle. So that's one thing, it, it, just that people speak up a whole lot less than most executives really understand. And even the people who are most vocal with the feedback are in many cases also the people who hold back the most. Because even people who are really, really vocal and share a lot of ideas, they pick their battles just like the rest of us. And no one wants to be seen as the squeaky wheel. So the silence is one issue. Another is that the strategies, the listening strategies that most companies rely on are not the kinds of strategies that are conducive to honest and open and transparent communication. Everyone loves to talk about anonymous surveys and they forget that if you ask employees whether they believe those surveys are really anonymous or not, the overwhelming majority in my experience do not buy for a second that they are actually protected, that their confidentiality will actually be respected. Because even in a company of 1,000, 2,000 employees, the theory goes at least, oh, they can slice and dice that data by department and all these other factors and narrow it down and they'll, they'll know it was me. On top of that, uh, you don't really get much useful feedback in the open-ended questions from these surveys. You can certainly get a precise number uh, for things like the employee net promoter score. And you can watch that line move up and down on a graph and see it go from an 8.1 to an 8.42 <laughs> from quarter to quarter. And that feels really good because it's precise and so it feels scientific. But that's really just scratching the surface because it doesn't give you anything that you can take action on. Knowing that we went from an 8.2 to an 8.1 tells me nothing about why that score went down. And it doesn't tell me anything about what I might do to get it back up. And even when you drill down to things like manager relationships or benefits and compensation, it's lacking in detail and it is certainly lacking in nuance. 
I have lost count of the number of times I've heard HR leaders complain that when they ask on these surveys, what can our company do to support you? So many people will say some version of pay me more, pay me. And that might be true, but it's also not very helpful. And if you actually sit down with those employees and talk to them one-on-one in an environment where they not only feel safe to share their honest feedback, but safe to go into detail and answer follow-up questions, you can follow up and ask things like, why do you believe that you're being underpaid right now? And if you do that, you might hear from one employee that they think that they're underpaid right now because every week they're getting reach outs from recruiters on LinkedIn, offering them positions with a huge salary bump. You might find out, find out from another that they went on Payscale or Glassdoor, punched in their numbers and found out that their market value is 20% above what we're paying them right now. You might speak to another and find out that they grabbed drinks with their colleagues Everyone got a little tipsy and they all just threw their salary numbers on the table. And it turns out you have a pay equity problem in your company. You might hear all three of those in the same study, or you might find a consistent pattern across all those conversations, but you will never get that level of detail and insight without actually sitting down person to person and talking to them. Yeah. I think the things that you, the, the two things that I heard there. So number one is cultivating uh, a trusting and psychologically safe environment where people feel uh, empowered to voice their true concerns, as well as a space to uh, foster collaboration to identify, really get to the root of these things, and and then to then come up with solutions. And without those who, certainly without the first in terms of having that safety, I think that's certainly, you know, one piece of it. But the second piece is the the solutions probably should have an involvement on of, of all parties that are involved. Mm-hmm. But to me, those those seem like pretty big, pretty big things that are, are don't necessarily happen overnight. And particularly if you're in a large organization, if you don't have them, um, it takes, it might take some time to, to work on that. And I guess what I'd love to hear from you is just given the challenges that exist within the workplace right now, how badly do we need to really rethink, you know, things in terms of workplace and workplace culture? With so much of, again, like the talk right now is this great reimagination and rethinking things. Uh, to what degree does that, do you, do, based off what you've seen, does that really register to you? I think it's very clear to everyone, employees, HR, executives, investors, that what we have been doing until now is not sustainable, especially in high growth companies. It is not sustainable. The question is, what do we replace it with? And I don't know how we move forward from where we are to a place that's more sustainable without acknowledging that many of the issues we're dealing with now are rooted in the drive towards growth at all costs. I also strongly believe that right now, you know, 
I'm not in the prediction business. People ask me all the time if I think that the great resignation represents something larger scale or a long-term shift. And I I honestly can't say uh, whether it will. What I can say with a decent amount of confidence is that we are in the waning years of the current ideological regime that began in the Reagan years and was preceded by the New Deal era. And the last 40 years have been hyper-focused on what Rebecca Solnit calls the tyranny of the quantifiable efficiencies, growth at the expense of feelings, morals, things that are difficult to measure, values. And I believe that we are on the cusp of something new. I don't know which form that's going to take. Uh, it could move much further towards the ideals of democratic socialism and more employee voice and more worker involvement in the way companies are managed. It could also move further towards the ideals of fascism and authoritarianism. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I cannot wait to see because what we have right now is clearly not sustainable. And I'm doing everything in my power to push us towards a future where employees' voices are valued and heard and have a real impact on the way that leaders decide what to do with their company. I, I think that's a great articulation. And I know it feels like we've been a little doom and gloom to to, to start this podcast, but I, I do maybe want to switch gears for a second and I think companies that have worked with you, maybe they've had some challenges, but I would love to know just any examples you've seen where maybe they did have challenges, but they were able to come to some sort of solutions that were positive, that did demonstrate growth and learning, and that helped foster some kind of improvement in the culture, in the workplace for their people. So I can talk a little bit about some of the work that I did with Peloton. I can't speak specifically to any of the challenges, but but what I can share is some of the things we were able to accomplish and how those impacted the business. With Peloton, one of the broad themes that came out of the research was that hiring managers, uh, in contrast to what the recruiting team thought, actually wanted to be more involved in the process. Most recruiting teams think of themselves as they're a service branch of the org. They're there to take work off the hiring manager's plates. But Peloton, in this case with the tech recruiting team, they actually wanted to be a little bit more involved in the process because they could see that the ROI there was going to save them time in the end. And so one of a few projects that we did after the research to address the concerns we heard was to revisit the role intake process so that hiring managers would sit down with recruiters, go through a short but comprehensive list of questions to help suss out all of the different things like skills, knowledge, abilities, things that maybe wouldn't be obvious to the recruiters, but that were really important for that role, things that might seem obvious, but that actually weren't very important for the role, to really align on that definition before a job was posted. In terms of results, a year after our engagements, Peloton's tech recruiting team had raised their hires per recruiter per quarter, which is the key metric for that team. They raised it by 40%. 
They also raised the candidate satisfaction by about 20 net promoter score points. And so uh, all this to say, I think a lot of people don't have an easy time connecting employee feedback to real business results. But that's also because most founders don't have a really clear understanding of the cost, the true cost of hiring, the true cost of retention. I heard an HR leader say the other day that a big breakthrough moment for them was when they were able to demonstrate to the organization that hiring one engineer cost 80 hours of engineering time, just interviewing, let alone headhunter fees, let alone all of the other additional costs of equipping that new hire on top of their salary. And so, you know, I think it's really important for, I think it's really important for any founder before they start a company to learn a little bit about the talent side, learn a little bit about the culture side, understand how hiring and retention and training work together to enable employees to show their value to the company over the course of years. Most people don't really think that much about ramp time. They think, oh, we'll hire someone and we'll have them on a project next week. We got to staff up now. Um, When in reality, they probably should have hired that person three months ago because it takes at least 90 days for a new employee to ramp up to full productivity. For some roles like sales and engineering, it can take six to nine months. I've talked to salespeople who did not hit quota for 12 months. And we're the number one salesperson in their org. But that is sometimes how long it takes. This is a a great segue, particularly talking about hiring and and culture and talent. And I think you make a couple of really good points, particularly for um, company founders, oftentimes who, for many of them, not all of them, but many of them, they they want to be the they want to they want to build they want to build a product or they want to solve a problem. They don't necessarily get into the the business of all the other things that you mentioned. But those things matter, particularly when you are going to be in high growth mode where you are going to hire lots of people. But regardless if you're a high growth company or if you're a big company, having a good talent brand and having a good culture are, are important to applicants and, and people who are looking at your company. And most of our listeners are, are looking for jobs. And I think one of the things that often comes up in my conversations with people is they they understand that to them, Workplace culture and company culture is is important, but just because some company writes something on their webpage or just because Glassdoor says a certain thing, it it's a data point, but it doesn't necessarily get to the level of granularity that they would like uh, to feel comfortable about a particular company or culture. Or the converse of that, they do take that as something as a, a very valuable data point, and when they show up, something else happens in reality. And I would love to know just from your perspective... What should job seekers think about as they're evaluating companies and thinking about the culture of the company? So this is a big question. I'm going to do my best to share some tactical tips. So one thing that I will always do when I'm trying to understand a company's culture is I will start with the leadership. Typically, it's the founders. If the founders have already been replaced or the founding CEO has been replaced by a new CEO, I will start with that CEO. And I will learn everything that I possibly can about that person or those people from public data. That obviously means going through their Glassdoor reviews, 
with a specific eye towards ignoring the reviews that seem to be plants, because most companies these days who are aware of Glassdoor and prioritizing it will ask employees a certain number of months after their hire to review them on Glassdoor. You can usually tell those reviews because they are very terse and often very positive. And you can even tell in the cons section of the review, there's usually some language like, I haven't found any yet. And then you'll see that they've only been there for less than a year. So I'll look at the Glassdoor reviews and really just pay attention to the ones that are longest, not the most critical or the most positive, but the ones that are longest, because that is a sign that they're actually genuine reviews. A second thing that I will do is I will look at the, I will look at the person in questions LinkedIn. I will check their recommendations, both the recommendations they've given to others and the recommendations others have given to them. And the reason I look at both of those is the recommendations that others have given to them are like their testimonials, tell you what other people love about them. The recommendations they give to others, they tell you what this person prioritizes in the people who work for them. And that gives you a lot of insight into what motivates them. If all of their recommendations are praising their former employees for their use of data, that tells you something valuable. If they praise everybody for being really independent and shielding them from stuff, that tells you something different. I will also, and this is, I'll just call this my secret weapon because I don't know anyone else who does it. If they have a public Twitter profile, I will go to that profile and I will skip straight to the likes. And I will scroll through as many of their likes as I can find to understand what they, what they favorite when they think no one's watching. And I will also go through their following list and I will see who they follow. And that is really a window to the soul because those are the people that this individual thinks are so important and relevant to their work or their values that they have chosen to invite them into their feed. And oftentimes for me, especially when I am trying to get a sense of how a company values diversity, equity, and inclusion, that following list is really, really helpful because I can just look at the literal voices on the timeline of this person and I can see what does that group look like? Do they all look the same? Do they all work in venture capital? Those are valuable data points. And all of this together helps me start to build a mental model of what that leadership team values, how they view the world. And that more than anything I have found is the most useful window into the culture of a company. It starts from the top. And so I study the top. That's, I think that's such a great point. And the, the word I, I definitely want to hone in on, which I don't think is talked about enough, but we were talking about it a little bit before we started, is that idea of the worldview, right? And, and even just thinking about that on an individual level, how you see the world or, or how your views of the world have been shaped very much influences how we as individuals interact and engage with one another. And that is true for a CEO of a company, which then is projected onto the rest of an organization. 
And even as you were mentioning before, talking a little bit about some of the uh, generational perhaps divides that sometimes exist, sometimes I think some of that, when there is a gap or there is a disconnect, I think part of that often comes back to the way in which whomever or the two individuals see and view the world. And so as I think about what you just talked about and the advice that I would you know, give to job seekers out there really is, in addition to doing all the, the the things that you mentioned, which I think are phenomenal tactical pieces of advice, really is trying to understand that worldview and, and the things that shape it. Because that, I think, whether it's the CEO of the company or the direct hiring manager that you're speaking with for a specific role, that will influence very much the interactions that come 100%. I agree. And I know it can be very challenging, especially for folks who come from a business background, to speak openly about beliefs and especially political beliefs because that is a live wire. My best advice is even if you can't explicitly ask someone what they believe, you can find out if you pay attention and ask the right questions. A hundred percent. Ben, this has been a great conversation. I really, I've really enjoyed talking with you and nerding out a little bit on, on work and, and culture. It's, it's, it's been, it's been really fun. I guess maybe I'm an internal optimist. So maybe just the last question before we wrap up here, if, there is one wish you could have uh, that could be granted in terms of what you would want leaders of organizations to do to create a better workplace. What would that wish be? Stop relying on passive listening strategies like office hours or open door policies and start taking active measures to understand your employees' true needs. That means scheduling one-on-one conversations, not just when someone asks, you know, raises their hand and says, hey, I have an issue, but continually checking in, having managers continually check in, having HR continually check in, having skip level and executive managers continually check in, and most importantly, bringing in someone from the outside to check in in a way where even the people who need that level of psychological safety feel comfortable speaking up. Because if you only rely on the people inside your company to give you the view from inside your company, you will not get an accurate perspective. Ben Jackson, uh, founder and principal of Hear Me Out. Thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to learn more about your work or... Hearmeout.co, my newsletter at hearmeout.email. I'm on Twitter at Benjamin Jackson. Uh, Find me all those places. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.